me it's matt uh and me hillary and it's marooned on mars with matt and hillary that which is us and this is the uh kim stanley robinson centric mars trilogy focused podcast Mm -hmm. of us reading through the mars trilogy and talking about it yep talking about it with each other reading it with you no better explanation of (laughs) anything has ever been uh made than that Um, thanks Thanks. I Off hope the top everyone, of my head. I hope everyone understands what's going on. Uh, you know, if you don't understand at this point. <laughs> what if this was the first episode someone was listening to? Um, so the, the chapter... I think they're not going to listen to anymore. Then no. Probably. Uh, then goodbye. Uh, nice knowing you. Um, what is it? Chapter six? Part six of uh, Green Mars, which is called Tarikat, which is Tarikat. a S- Sufi uh, right. word for one's spiritual path. It's a spiritual journey that is your road to reality and i believe we learned this word actually in red mars really when i think when john boone is hanging out with the sufis um in red mars uh one of them tells him about that idea Hmm. that the journey that he's on is a tarikat so yeah, this that wouldn't surprise me yes exactly and the interesting dialectical (laughs) nature of these novels yes yeah exactly and it seems like the the idea there is something like um you know it's not that in journeying you head toward the ideal it's in journeying you head into or figure out what is the terms of your reality Mm -hmm. what are the terms of your Mm -hmm. reality so this chapter does and this chapter definitely the latter bit of this chapter to some extent repeats that earlier chapter when john is traveling around and trying to talk to as many different people as possible and to some extent it's not a repetition because we're in a different historical moment and stuff has become more complicated and it's not just good old john boone trying to make his synthesis happen um but we were thinking that maybe what we're going to do is talk about the first part of the chapter um, up until the part where uh, Nergal and Jackie and Art are all traveling around with Nadia, going to the different communities, um, uh, just, so, just to divide the chapter up because it's long right. um, and because it has sort of two different modes. One is a lot about Art and Nergal talking to each other, um, particularly Nergal talking to Art, not right. so much Art talking to Nergal as it turns out, um, and also about what's happening with Saks, um, and Spencer and uh, Nergal's attempts to heal mm-hmm. Sax. Yeah, and then um, we'll probably cover that this episode, and then maybe, unless we get just burned through it and realize there's nothing to talk about, which well, true. is so very likely with a Kim Stanley Robinson novel. Yeah. There's just nothing to talk about. And, and also, I noticed that you and I never have anything to say. Nah. No. Um, and then next time, we'll do the Nadia stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And that seems like a good idea. I think this. I think that is a good idea. This was such a long chapter, actually, that uh, I uh, forgot as we were like reviewing this. I forgot. I had forgotten completely what the prologue was. Yeah. Um, and it has. It's part of that mythology of Mars's prehistory. Um, and in that voice of, in one of these, vo- I feel like there's multiple omniscient narrator yeah. voices, yeah, like I third agree. person people this is kind of the more casual the more um freewheeling voice uh, uh of like sort of campfire stories or something like that yeah i think of this as like kind of the um that woody guthrie yeah. mode if woody guthrie was like yeah doing a talking part of a song totally totally on the like on the third page of it it the two paragraphs start with anyway mm-hmm. so it's that kind of like rambling story of like you know, homey, um, just just unweaving this uh, this tale, right? Um, and and it's actually a tale that we've heard before. We've heard it in an earlier prologue when we get the big man and Paul Bunyan are fighting, and then well, it's what happens after that, right? Right. So it begins with big man and Paul Bunyan fighting, and then Paul Bunyan and um, his blue ox babe uh, are dead, and then we get the bacteria inside Paul Bunyan and babe circulating the bacteria begin to make life and the life form they make are the eventually the little red people the little red people um, and then we see them out of the corner of our eyes they're kind of they're always there um and john boone could see them the best and and like all good tall tales it both seems to take very seriously the presence of the little red people as a real living thing yeah. and also suggests that it is true that excessive use of Omegendorf causes faint red crawling dots in the abuser's peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we both get the reason to be skeptical and kind of the reason to believe mm-hmm. the pleasure in it being a tall tale, as well as, you know, the sense that maybe this is something that's going to explain something to us. Yeah, but I like that. I mean, I, th- I think that, that, that that's, an, that's like a nod to the kind of human need for stories to mm-hmm. explain things that science can't explain or that just scientific explanations are inadequate for explaining because they have a sort of a deeper mystical pull. Right, right. right. That you need stories and you need myths to kind of give yourself uh, the break of <laughs> trying to understand everything, like leaving something... Um, explained, but also inexplicable. The great unexplainable, if you will. The great unexplainable. I also like, I like, I love that the little red people are little, um, yeah. and clearly they are, um, uh, uh, yeah, I love that the little literal, red people are yeah. little and that they're everywhere. Yeah. And that it's another version of a kind of like point of view problem, both right. because their point of view seems to be a multiple point of view. They all they seem to share a point right. of view, but also um, uh, a whole caravan cities are carrying the little red people around with us, and they're getting ready to talk to us again. They're right. figuring out who they should talk to. They're asking themselves which of these giant idiots knows about Ka, mm-hmm. um, and that idea of like something that you don't notice. It's like the dust in the corners of your room. It's ubiquitous. It's there, but that its point of view matters also. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Ka is supposed to be the name that they use for Mars. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the last paragraph of the prologue is, and so the Ka watch us and they ask, who knows Ka? Who spends time with Ka and learns Ka and likes to touch Ka and walks around on Ka and lets Ka seep into them and leaves the dust in their rooms alone? Those are the humans we're going to talk to. Pretty soon we're going to introduce ourselves, they say, to just as many of you as we can find who seem to like Ka. And when we do, you'd better be ready. 
We're going to have a plan. It'll be time to drop everything and walk right out on the streets into a new world. It'll be time to free Ka. I love that it's the the folks who leave the dust in their rooms alone <laughs> uh, as a person who hates cleaning and dusting. Yeah. Um, that, that there is a place for, uh, you know, that, that the, the people, the chaotic people <laughs> are going to be the one to save us from this uh, overweening, uh, stultifying order that we're trying to impose constantly, like the fight against entropy. Right, right. There is a place for entropy in the universe. Right. Um, well, and also the sort of sense, I mean, we get the idea that like... Um, you know, maybe the, maybe it's the little red people who came to Earth and became the things that we called fairies or yeah, elves, right? right? You know, and I mean, you're not supposed to, you know, sweep after dark because that disturbs the fairies, right? Oh, that's I'll remind my girlfriend <coughs> <You> of that should... <laughs> when she tries to vacuum. <laughs> no cleaning after at night. Sunset. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think that this is like I partly like this opening uh, because I have no idea how to say like how this prologue fits beautifully into um this chapter except that it suggests to us one something we've talked about a bunch before which is this book particularly is always about revealing that there is way more going on on mars than can be told by the story of the first 100 there mm -hmm. are more people there are more possibilities there are all these ways of life um, and again, we have this idea that, you know, the little people are defining themselves as Ka, as Mars, and they're looking for the person who looks at Mars, who sees Mars. We have that idea again. Um, and we kind of don't know here, like, is their standard for seeing Mars the Anne standard, mm -hmm. the Sachs standard, the Nergal standard? Um, or do they see Mars in an entirely different way and what they're, you know, uh, from a point of view that we haven't seen reconciled to any human point of view? Well, it's the John Boone. I mean, it's like Booneism, right? Um, and like this kind of non-systematic non thinking that is this kind of uber syncretism that can't ever actually be written down. Right. It's just right. a feeling that John Boone has right. that he wants to share with everybody. And there's no way to write it down or write a subscription for uh, a prescription for it. There's no way to create a constitution around this feeling. It's just this utopian, unnameable thing. Right. And so, part of maybe we maybe to link it to the chapters is who is going to carry on John Boone's legacy, not as a person who can actually organize or build anything, not as a person who can actually build anything, but as a person who can organize ideologically multiple groups like who uh can carry on john boone's legacy as the person who created that gathering on olympus mons right um, and right. multiple times throughout this chapter we get people being compared to boone especially art randolph right and jackie of course appears reappears in this chapter and as john boone's daughter and as the carrier of her ai of his ai pauline she wants the mantle of of john boone right right and when at the one point art randolph someone says you're just, you know you're just like john boone and jackie goes no he's not yeah right exactly, uh, exactly. it's very important for her to like maintain her her boonishness right um, and we see her as in many ways like you know, kind of part Maya, part mm -hmm. John, right. right? She, like Maya, is the charismatic, relentlessly energetic, uh, you know, seductive, right. uh, mercurial. Yeah. Um, maybe in many ways she seems to be more of a manipulator than Maya, who mm -hmm. seems to have been more somebody who was really just following her impulses as opposed to 
really having thought through yeah. what it was going to get her. Although we know that the she certainly thought about Frank and John in, in terms of like the power that they had and what it would mean to be related to them. Whereas we get Jackie as a little bit more conscious or a little bit more like, um, uh, if not conscious, at least a little bit more like deliberate in her seductive, aiming her I, seductiveness. I think she's way more conscious and way more deliberate than Maya because Maya's concern with John and Frank was never political. It was always personal. Like she right. was always going to Michelle, the psychiatrist about it. She wasn't going to, and she was going to Nadia, but also Nadia as a woman, not <laughs> yeah, right. Nadia as, as her a politician, yes, right? Poor, poor as Nadia. her girlfriend, right? Like, right. oh my God, Frank and John. Oh my God. Like right. that's my impression of Maya. Although she does back when they're on the area, she does think about getting involved with John. I mean, one of the thoughts that she but, has about getting involved yeah. with John is, oh, like, look, we're both the leaders. There's yeah. something fitting in this, you know. Yeah, but that's more aesthetic, I feel like, for her than yeah, it is maybe, political. Yeah, maybe that's true. Whereas Jackie is, like, really calculating right. in the terms of, like, oh, if there's a woman sitting next, if there's an attractive woman sitting next to art, I'm going to sit on the other side of art. Right. And uh, if there's a, an, an attractive uh, Bedouin um, named Antar, who's right. like the prince of the Bedouins, super hot guy, I'm going to start manipulating yeah. him right away. And everyone see like Nergal and Art and Nadia, you know, all see that, right. that this is what Jackie is doing quite transparently. Right, um, right. Because they're, they're so used to her, basically. Right. Well, and it's an interesting kind of... Um, you know, in that way, maybe she, like, is actually a little bit more Frank-like yeah. mm -hmm. than, like, either Maya yeah. or, uh, except with a with a sort of charismatic quality that's much more on the surface than yeah. Frank's charisma. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, she's a, like, disturbing figure to me. Um, I mean, I think a little bit, I mean, she's probably disturbing because, like, man, she makes a lot of trouble mm -hmm. for people she and really causes does. a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, and, like, I'm always... I you know I remember this from reading these the last time and I've been thinking about this this time too like it's disturb her hatred of Maya is disturbing partly because it is it, you know it partakes of that sort of like um misogynist idea that women essentially hate each other because they can only relate to each other as rivals um you know uh you know either one is clearly dominant or you know they have to hate each other um but I also feel like she, as a character, gives me a little bit of pain because there is something that is sexist in the representation of her, totally you know, agree. as totally. the seductress. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you know, like this does this. It's not that this doesn't sound like a kind of person that one might know. Yeah. Um, but also because that seems to be like a feminine quality of yeah. hers. Um, yeah, there is. Which is like troubling in some There ways. isn't a male counterpart to Jackie who uses his sexuality the same way that she uses hers. Like, right. Nergal is at least as sexual as Jackie, but he's in it purely for pleasure and he right. doesn't really use it against people, whereas Jackie really uses it to play men off of each other. Right. And, and play women off of each other right. as well. Right. And Nergal, a little bit, you know does kind of play this nice guy role with Jackie where like, you know, he loves her. He's stuck and in the is, friend zone. <laughs> except that they have sex, but then, well, yeah, but, you know, but like everybody has sex. He's, he's always going to be there. Right. You know, Nergal's always going to be yeah, there. Like right. he's not going to at some point be like, we're not friends anymore. Right. Yeah. Jackie. Yeah. And the, and Nergal's the third option for like the carrier, the carrier of the Boonism, right? Mm -hmm. Like right. you have art, you have Jackie, but then you have Nergal at the center of all this, at the center of this chapter. 
um, who everyone relates to. His reputation precedes him. When he mm-hmm. shows up at places, they say, I've heard of you before. Um, he, he's really legendary. And as we'll see, uh, he becomes even more so because of certain acts that he right, is able to right. do. Um, in that way, he kind of draws on Coyote's charisma because mm-hmm. Coyote is this, myster- he's not only his Coyote's is his father, but like Coyote is this mysterious presence who everyone knows, who gets along, basically more or less everybody gets along <laughs> right, right. with him. Um, and, uh, and so Nergal is really, and I mean, he, you know, you know, he's really one of the big sort of emotional cores of the, of the books right, in a certain right. way. So it's hard to, um, to overlook him in terms of a, a person who is a real unifier. Right. Um, even, even though because of his kind of, just his very sort of, I want, I wouldn't want to say his nature, but like, because of who he is, he's also constantly on the move. Right. So like Coyote and like John Boone, being constantly on the move isn't actually, doesn't turn out to be that great for like unifying people because you're never there. Right. Right. Well, and it's interesting that, you know, I mean, one thing, one of the things that I think is we see in this chapter as, you know, earlier with hanging out with John Boone is that there are always questions around like when you imagine organization having to condense around a single individual, right? right? Particularly a particularly one who has a kind of charisma, um, a demagogue, uh, right? Who could be a demagogue? I mean, in the case of John, like you know, he wasn't a demagogue, but at the same time, he was imagining creating something that he couldn't really articulate to other people. Right you know, a feeling that he had that he could communicate through like the vibrancy of his being. Right. But, you know, like, is that a sustainable way it's more to like a cult leader? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's some, there's something else going on there. And I, I think this chapter is interesting partly because I think it's important to emphasize again that although, uh, Nergal and Art did not know each other prior to this moment, um, we also know that Nergal set up, Mm-hmm. Um, not only Art's coming to Mars, mm-hmm. but Art's meeting up with Maya and Coyote and Nergal mm-hmm. out there um, when his car breaks down. And that is a, that's a connection that Nergal does not confess to anyone, yeah. right? He's the only one who knows that he had been talking to Praxis because he thought there might be something there. Yeah. So again, we have like an individual who's taken like an action. Right. That yet we don't we don't yet know whether how significant that action right. is, um, and then the other thing that I think is interesting in this chapter is um, a good chunk of the chapter is Nergal talking to Art yeah. and Art you know doing his kind of magic thing where he's eliciting somebody talking to him and telling be, him being friendly. Yeah, he's being friendly, being a good friendly American guy. He just open, open moon face, moon calf, yeah, moon calf. <laughs> that moon calf who you just want to talk to. Yeah. Um, and so we see like also how Nergal thinks about himself and we see his self-conception. And I think in the last episode you pointed out or maybe, well, I think maybe, maybe this is just something we were saying to each other, but like, uh, you know, Nergal is still young. Yeah. Oh, that was He's a young say, man. Yeah. Um, and so we're kind of seeing him forming his own conception of himself, just as you were saying before, people out in the world already have a conception of Nergal. Yeah. Already have ideas yeah. about him and have, he has a slightly mythologized quality. Especially already. as a young person, as a young 25 year old person, tw- AKA 12 year old person who mm. expects to live 1000 years. 
you know, like Yipes. when you're born and you're a kid, you're like, how old do people, you know, grandpa died. How old was he? 75. Okay. So I can expect to live 70 till I'm 75 and now I'm 10. And that means, oh my God, I'm going to be dead in 65 years. And what this does is, that even this mean? This is the story of your childhood. I literally, yes. <laughs> it's the story of my present right now. Um, but like, you know, it, it's a it's a complete extension of, of childhood in the sense of, you know, and also on Mars, you whatever the economics on Mars are for people who come to Mars after the first hundred, um, it's an open book for like the first hundred and right. for the people who are born there. Like they don't have jobs. Right. They don't have worries about an income. They don't, you know, Sachs can devote years to just becoming a biologist after being a whatever that he was before right. or a geologist. Right. I mean, it sounds to, I mean, to me it's like paradise because you can just like, read and read and read as much as you want whatever you want to read and not have to worry about like putting food on the table or paying rent right right well and I, I mean there's some great stuff in here about like how the economic system gets yes. carried on and yeah. how the kind of the gift economy has modified itself but i also just i gotta say like um one of the things that nurgle talks to coyote about um is going to sabishi to go to university right um and, um, you know, and he has these great reflections on what it meant for him to leave Zygote and go into the Demimond, right? right? Not, not only was he leaving, like, his little, the town he was born in, like, the tiny town that he came from, mm -hmm. where there was, like, literally a one-room schoolhouse. Not only was he leaving that, he was also leaving the underground mm -hmm. and going out into the strange, you know, neither this nor that life of the Demimond, which seems to be, like this place of great creativity and a place where yeah. people are really, you know, unlike the underground where because people are hiding, there's some necessary separation among communities. In the yeah. Demimond, it's all about mixing together, yeah. about being with, uh, uh, Nergal says, being with strangers. Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I love his, um, on 296, uh, uh, he says to Art, um, uh, you know, looking at the look on Art's face, the curiosity, the interest. You just want to tell Art everything. Uh, they talked about everything in the way people will, their pasts, their opinions, their hopes. Nergal spent most of his time trying to explain Zygote and Sabishi. I spent some years in Sabishi. The EC there run an open university. There's no records kept. You just attend the classes you want and deal with your teacher and no one else. Uh, a lot of Sabishi operates off the record. I just like, that's, you don't hear a whole lot more about the university than that, other than you go and you study the things that you're interested in. Um, but I was thinking like, you know, as a person who works at a university. Mm -hmm. um, you're the director of the Masters of Arts program in the humanities uh, <laughs> at uh, the University of Chicago. That's true. As a person who not only works in a university, but like, you know, runs like a little chunk of it. I mean, like, it sounds like a small thing to say, like, there's an open university, yeah. there are no records, you attend the classes that yeah. you want. But, like, just like you were saying about work, you know, that work on Mars is not what we think of work being. It's not labor you exchange for a wage. Right. You don't do it in order to sustain yourself. Well, you don't do it unless you're one of the, I mean, unless, you don't if you're one of the first hundred, unless you right. come in there from the If you're Earth part of the underground, exactly, right. <laughs> if you're part of the underground, or it seems like also in the Demimond, people right. live differently. Um, but, but how, what a completely different idea about what a university is. Yeah. If you're not doing it for credit, right? You're yeah. not doing it for a degree. You, you know, it's taken seriously that, you know, there are things that you learn and you want to 
learn from people who have already learned them. You know, it's taken seriously that there are people who can be experts. You know, that, that you know, a class is something that you might want to have in order to study something and really think about it. Yeah. And yet it's not roped in. It's not about credentials. Right? There's it's no not curriculum. About, it's not about producing credentials. And, and I that I just like the end of... Um, uh, Robinson's Years of Rice and Salt, which is another one of my favorite of yeah. his novels, ends at a, this is not, doesn't spoil anything, but it ends at a university in the future that is the same kind of, it's open, um, people are going to the classes that they want to go to to pursue the things they want to pursue communally, and yes, there are people who are teachers, but they're not the holders of like this credential that you can get, so it's not, you know, it detaches learning from reproducing the class system, and just that moment in this chapter, you know, is like so moving to me is this picture of like, yeah, you know, like th- that that could happen. I mean, that's it's not, not that's not a crazy idea. It would make everyone's lives so much easier if you could if I mean, look, listener, you're listening to two uh, college professors talk right now. The amount of students that you take that you have taking your classes because they just have to take the class to fulfill a requirement or because it fits their schedule. It's really sad because we have like exciting, fun things to talk about (laughs) and ideas to explore and like realms to open up to human understanding and also to like let people imagine things. And it's just so depressing to be in the system that we're in where because education is so expensive in this country, every class has to teach you a usable skill rather than just open your imagination to something. Or what if, you know, like what, I mean, so much also of what we do, like whether, whether we want it or not, and whatever we might try to teach to try to like teach against this is reproducing a set of class relations. I mean, in, you know, in this country anyway, like a lot of what higher education is, is about gatekeeping, right? And about saying like, well, you're a person who comes from this kind of background and that means you deserve this kind of education. And you're a person who comes from this kind of background. That means you deserve this kind of education. And, you know, you want to get this degree in order to be recognizable in the world as somebody who can do something, you know, like, and that, you know, all, all of those things, those, those things don't have to be part of education. Right? They aren't part of education. And they're not part they're of They're part education. of indoctrination and training and class structure. And, and, in, and institutionalization and the institutionality yeah. of, of the university. And anyway, I, whatever, this is just like, I, I just love that that's just such a tiny moment. Um, yeah. But in many ways, that well, seems really typical of these books is yeah. that they give you these like, Things that seem to be small, and then when you think about them, and you think like, "Well, that's not a crazy idea," but also, "Oh, it's so far from so the way far. that we live." I right? want to come back to Sabishi in a minute. Or yeah, sorry, I just had to leap into no, that no, part it's great. I'm obsessed with because I do that. want to return. I just want to say one thing about um, Nergal and his youth, um, and like him being the one to reach out to Praxis and William Ford. Yeah. As a person who's 25 or 12 in Martian years, so like a child, it is kind of almost like, and as a person who like, you know, he hasn't revealed this. No one knows that he's the one who summoned art and arranged this whole thing. And maybe Coyote knows, but it is kind of like a kid writing to Santa Claus and then Santa Claus writing back to him (laughs) in a way because he just is so unaware of the implications of this it is that kind of freedom of youth to like just explore something or try something yeah, out whereas yeah. none of the first hundred would ever do this because of maya's suspicion nadia's apprehension um just 
rash, very rational fear of transnationals in general. Right. Whether whether they are praxis, uh, the you know the the neo Marxist praxis, which still has a feudal caste system, uh-huh. <laughs> or arms corps, which is just appears to be straight up like uh, military industrial complex. Right. 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 Um, right. So, so it is this kind of like wish fulfillment on, on, on your goals right. part. And it's kind of a fantasy that he has been able to, to live through in a certain way. Well, and I think there's also this sort of question that, um, and, and actually like art, I think is a really good figure for thinking about this. Like, I do think this book is always, you know, it wants us to think hard about when we'd want to dismiss something as being idealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there is something about Nergal, you know, that gesture of his, I mean, we can easily think we just finished a chapter where, uh, you know, Sachs was tortured right. um, by a jail put in place, you know, presumably by like the transnational Trans- transitional authority, by the yeah. transitional authority, whatever it is. Right. right. I mean, and we know who's propping up state authority on Earth um, mm-hmm. is the corporation. So mm-hmm. presumably that also was right. We've just seen, uh, you know, Maya maybe not make the decision, but kill Phyllis um, and and part of her doing that, part of her doing that is she seems to have felt in the immediate that Phyllis was there torturing sex. Right. But part of it is also because, like, you know, for a long time, Maya and I think other members of the First Hundred have felt like Phyllis went over to a, the oh, other yeah. side. And the other side was the side of the corporations. So we could easily think, like, oh, is Nergal, like, idealistic in thinking that maybe Praxis is different? We don't really have any way of knowing whether Praxis is actually different. Right. Or not, but I think we're always getting pushed to not just think that idealism is somehow naive, right? right? That, yeah. that this is just like a kind of oh, he's just a kid, and at the same time, yeah, he's really young. Yeah, you know, his most exciting experience is like you know being sort of college age mm-hmm. and like staying up all night having like intense arguments while drinking kava java. <laughs> kava java. <laughs> we get introduced to kava java in this chapter. Um, there was there's one line that I wanted from the very beginning of the chapter, and I don't. I mean, I think we were talking about sort of reality. I think it end. I think the chapter ends with a note about sort of reality, or I can't remember what. But at the beginning on two seventy six, uh, he's kind of looking around. They're, they've all just sort of freed Sacks from prison, and they're driving away. And he says, uh, "So Coyote is dosed through with painkillers." Laughed at his crazed laugh. Nergal felt physically light as if the gravity in his chest had lessened such extremes of exertion, fear, anxiety, now joy. Giddily, he understood that these were the moments that etched themselves into one's mind forever. There we have memory, right? When one was struck by the shocking reality of reality, so seldom felt now igniting in him like a fuse, and he could see the same stark glory mm. lighting, uh, lighting all his companions' faces, wild animals gro- glowing with spirit, mm. right? Mm. So there's that kind of, He's able to see two things at once, right? There's animals, human beings are animals, but they're also animals with spirit, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that uh, the reality of reality, you know, reality laid bare with none of the ideological lensing over it. Um, you're actually able to see what is really in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one, and and this is one of those moments that etches themselves in the mind forever. One right. Of those moments you'll never forget no matter how old you um grow right and then interestingly a moment that is revised quite soon afterwards uh 
um, as they uh, see Michelle and Maya Mm -hmm. and, you know, see Maya's glare and she, uh, you know, just sort of bursts out to Coyote, I killed Phyllis. There was silence. Nergal's hands went cold. Um, Looking around at the others, he saw they all felt awkward. It was the sole woman among them Mm -hmm. who was the killer. And for a second, there was something strange in that, which they all felt, including Maya, who drew herself up, scornful of their cowardice. None of this was rational or even conscious in them, something primal, instinctive, biological. Um, And Coyote says, you did good, you saved sex. Um, So, you know, we go from that moment of this, this sort of like, this, you know, like, uh, complete like bodily feeling of um, relief accomplishment um, having gotten through danger or mm-hmm. whatever it is and then into this moment of this like kind of you know what like this moral dilemma right. or you know this question about like how do you make a decision in that kind of situation um, can you know like is it possible that like the death of Phyllis is outweighed by saving Sacks, right. right? Well, it's also, I just find that moment, um, none of this was rational or even conscious in them, but rather something primal, instinctive, biological. In my notes, I wrote ideological, question mark. Yeah, right. Right, right. because the sole woman uh, has is a murderer, but women can't, you know, right, like that kind right. of thing. And, um, and uh, yeah, and of course, like, something that's not rational, not conscious, but primal, instinctive, and biological, that is what, you know, small I ideology or big I ideology mm-hmm. is. Um, and also, and then, of course, the gaze that's returned to all these men, Maya's gaze, is an eagle's alien hostility. Yeah, right, right. Right, so like, you know, that the, that uh, she is contemptuous of their horror. She glares at them with an eagle's alien hostility. She's moved away from the feline sexuality that she has with Michelle in the rover car. And now she's like this uh, alien bird-like, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. uh, mentality um, that's somehow prehistoric and like uh, just, you know, vicious, non inhuman, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an, it's a weird... Um, I don't know what we're supposed to do with that idea that, like, that response, you know, like, uh, the response that, like, somehow it's more shocking that it was a woman who did this is somehow, like, primal or instinctive. I mean, you know, I I suppose you think that if you think that, like, um, you know, sexual differentiation and actually not sexual differentiation, but, like, gendered differentiation is somehow primal. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. or maybe this is just like a reaching as frequently like characters have tried to do reaching toward like an evolutionary explanation mm-hmm. for something that's hard to understand. Like, right. why are they shocked yeah. by this? Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, and I guess actually that kind of like that sense of um, bodily experience that's so important yeah. to Nergal. Yeah. Um, that seems like that leads us well into thinking about like what we see um about Nergal and Sax here, right? Mm-hmm. Throughout the chapter, he's extremely tender towards Sax. And and we learn that, that um, I mean, so Sax can hardly speak. And when he speaks, the wrong words come out or a word that's maybe proximate, but is not the right word. But Nergal can sort of understand what he wants to say. And he's, he's ex- good at interpreting. He's him. good at interpreting. And he has this ability to be... Um, uh, highly attentive, right? He has this like innate kind of quality of being able to care, mm-hmm. which is interesting because it 
he, constantly he's reminded of sitting with Simon when Simon right. was dying, which is clearly this like childhood yeah. scene of horror for Nergal, yeah. right? Something that was traumatic. Uh, but at the same time, he still has this talent or this ability or something like that that lets him be with Sax in a way that other people aren't able to. Let him lets him be like so aware of him, mm-hmm. right? You know, he he just his caring just is like part of who he is. Yeah. Um, and that relates to too back to kind of the the question of embodiment in a way because mm. it's Sax's body that is that is. I mean, it's his mind, but his mind is part of his body at yep. this point. He's undergone this intense physical trauma, um, uh, and and he 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 does his thing right. Uh, they've the, his this med tech tells him uh, what on two eighty one, hold his head, Nergal, left side around the ear, just above it. Yeah, hold it there, and yeah, like that. Now do what you do. What you know, send heat into him. As she left hastily, <laughs> as if embarrassed to have made such a suggestion or frightened, right? That, you know, she's this med tech scientist and now like, do your magic stuff. Yeah, Use right. Use the force, right. right? I mean, and we've, you know, we've seen before that he has this ability to like, you know, have some kind of regulatory control over his own mm-hmm. metabolism, but also to send that into others. After he and Jackie plunge into the lake in Zygote, he warms warms her, right? I mean... Uh, I love, and I love that that comes after, just right before that bit that you read on, on 280, um, you know, we see Sachs, uh he's on a ventilator, which is circulating, circulating a liquid through his lungs, uh, which you can see through these clear tubes, um, and, uh, you know, it's like hyper-oxygenating him to try to, like, get mm-hmm. rid of the edema in his lungs, um, and so Nergal sat his hand on Sax's arm, watching the fluid inside the mask that was taped to Sax's lower face swirling in and out of him. It's like he's back in an ectogene tank, Nergal said. Or, the med tech said, looking at him curiously, in the womb. Mm-hmm. Yes, being reborn. He doesn't even look the same. And then a- after that, the med tech suggests that he keep his hand on her. But right. I, part of what's so great about that is like, you know, to the med tech, like the, the comparison that you make would obviously be to being in the womb, right? right? You know, yeah. here he is, <laughs> fluid right. circulating through right. him. And to Nergal, the comparison that you would obviously make would be to being in the ectogene tank. Right. And he even says he's back in an ectogene back tank. Of course, a place ectogene. where Sachs never was, right? right, right? right. Um, which is like this amazing, I mean, here's this kind of like, um, you know, if you want to think about how, Nergal is like post-human in some ways like he has a he I mean I think we can actually think of this as having a certain kind of cyborg quality if we think that part of what the cyborg is is about refusing to say what the refusing to see like a hard bright line between the biological and the technological Mm -hmm. right or something like that right or or between like machine and and human you know Nergal has this quality of like taking a human thing, right? The heat that we that our bodies produce, and being able to do something that actually feels like you know, kind of radiantly human. Like you know, what you know, he can touch another person mm-hmm. and transfer that to him. I mean, like if we think about that in this kind of like, uh, and that's full. You know, like just thinking about what he's able to do, like as healing, as the transfer of heat, as touch. All of this is like sort of radiantly like a way that we think about like you know 
humans who are great at connecting with other humans, right? And Nergal can do it literally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but his origin point is not like the womb. His origin point is that tank that right. he was born in that later we see him showing to Art and Art going, oh. oh. <laughs> and yet to him, that's the beginning of life. And he's totally, yeah. totally not disturbed by the med tech being like, you mean like a womb? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he uses this heat, a tentative jolt of whiteness sent into the injured green uh, to sort of try to help help heal sax and as he does so he he also chants to him mm -hmm. uh why sax but why why sax but why why sax but why why sax but why and um it's unclear what he's asking like what what the answer could be to that why right Maybe it's you know simon's because 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 right well and it's the why also from there when they would tease sax and right class, oh right? that's you know, uh, yeah right? that's like, right which would get sax to go off into his story that would take you all the way back to the big bang yeah which is like the childhood of the universe right and like you know nergal's childhood and sort of a kind of thing that links sax to nergal's childhood um and then there's this i think extraordinary moment where he where Nagal is sitting there the word why became nothing but a sound a kind of prayer an hour passed and then more hours slow and anxious until they fell into a kind of timeless state and Nagal couldn't have said whether it was day or night payment for our bodies he thought we pay mm. and this like opens up which maybe we'll talk more about next time the realm of economics yeah right, right that right. um that economics and and biology even just in our own bodies or there's come some kind of system of exchange or balance or whatever that has to be a you know a payment is demanded for simply having a body right right um when it, i you know again it's another place where we are challenged to not think uh you know in a cartesian way in a sort of like mind is greater than body mm -hmm. way um I, to me, this part of what interests me about the this aspect of Nergal, part of it is the way in which it intersects with a spirituality mm -hmm. of a kind, you know, a kind that we don't really know how to describe because it doesn't seem to fall into any conventional version of spirituality. But it also interests me because this is a... Um, uh, I, I think of this as being very much an interest of feminist science fiction, which often is quite interested in breaking down um, uh, the supposed priority of mind over body um, and is also very interested in like this the sort of like um, finding ways to make um, manifest that our relations with each other are material as much as they are say spiritual or imaginative or whatever um, so like there's a lot of interest in feminist science fiction in and particularly like in the in the 70s feminist science fiction in like um, uh, things like biofeedback. Mm -hmm. Right. But also like telepathy, also like co other kinds of states of like co feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and often in those novels, there's a suggestion that like um we have these kind of human capacities to feel with each other um, that could include like, you know, experiencing things about another person that, that we conventionally think of as not being experienceable. Um, but that part of what keeps us from being able to do that is not 
uh, that we're not able to do that as like physical beings, but that we live in ways that divide us, that make us individual. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. of like Marge Piercy's amazing novel, Woman on the Edge of Time, mm-hmm. in which in the future society, like um, there's a very strong emphasis on mind-body relations and on people's ability to like be with each other in these like incredibly complicated, interconnected ways. But part of the reason that they can do that is they've reformed their economic system, right? right? And they don't have money and nobody works for a wage. Um, And, you know, that matters just as much as that kind of ability. And here, I mean, I think that's part of that link here, right? When he's he's thinking about pay and he's thinking Mm -hmm. about energy exchange and expenditure. Mm -hmm. But it's also like here he is, like the Martian, one of the earliest generations of Martians. And he has a capacity to be with other people um, beyond the kind of capacity that that uh, you know the first 100 have, beyond the capacity that baseline human beings right. have, um, For yeah, me, it's such a it's such an intense well, kind of beautiful being moment. born not in a womb, not from a womb, but from an ectogene tank, and then being brought up in a in a world without um, wage labor, yeah, <laughs> without own, without real ownership of any kind, living in giant bamboo trees, living in bi- giant bamboo <laughs> trees that just grow out of it's not even a bamboo. Tr- I mean, yeah, b- bamboo trees that just grow that way, yeah, right. Um, as a matter of fact, like you don't have to do any work on them physically because you've already <laughs> built it into their DNA, into the system of them growing, and therefore, like you can be with another human being and just be with them that uh on 282 we get the sort of the what happens right after that one evening about a week after their arrival they pumped sax's lungs clear took the ventilator off sax gasped loudly then breathed he was an air breather again a mammal right right? so we have this mini like evolutionary process um They'd repaired his nose, though it was now a different shape, almost as flat as it had been before his cosmetic surgery. His bruises were still spectacular. Um, he blinks and blinks and looks at Nergal and clutches his hand. Uh, and then Nergal finds Coyote. Um, Coyote says, now that Sax is stabilized, we should get out of here. You and Spencer can tend to Sax in the car while we drive west around Olympus. Okay, Nergal said, when they say Sax is ready. Coyote stared at him. They say you saved him, that you brought him back from the dead. Nergal shook his head, frightened at the very thought. He never died. I figured, but that's what they're saying. Coyote regarded him thoughtfully. You'll have to be careful. I like there. There's a suggestion that Coyote has seen this before. Like yeah. <laughs> oh, I've seen people. I've seen this Messiah thing. Before. You're gonna have to be careful. Let me tell you, pal. Um, so they they uh, they drive off with sacks. They they've split up with Michelle and Maya. Maya and Michelle and whoever else have gone off to Tharsis Tholus or with taking all their bad feelings with them. Meet them at yeah. <laughs> um, and so now it's um, Coyote, Art, Nergal and Sax, right? And, and Spencer. And Spencer. And, Spencer and Spencer. Yeah, I believe Spencer is with them. Um, but Spencer actually, when he meets Nergal, he says, oh, he's the one who says, I've heard of you. Right? Yeah, um, right. Um, and, uh, at this point, Coyote, because now they've freed Sax and they've blown up this prison, Coyote is kind of off the leash, so to speak. And he wants to do some more damage because now they know that we're out here. So now we don't have to sneak around. Right. We can really like right. F S up. Right. Right. Um, I don't want to keep it PG. <laughs> so um, I noticed that we have an explicit on our Yeah, on our I don't know iTunes. if it matters, but I just I click it because we say the F word sometimes. Fuck. <laughs> um, 
What? So he wants to kill some miners and wreck some facilities, and Art talks him out of this very diplomatically. Right. Right? He basically says, look, you can't go around killing people because when and if and when the underground or the demimond has to surface, if you've killed a bunch of innocent people, you're never going to create a winning coalition. You have to have them on your side. So you have to be a little bit more clever than this. You can do you can do what you want to do, smash the infrastructure, but you can't kill innocent people. And Coyote is a little bit confused about this. It's and like, slightly annoyed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's like, oh, he says, um, uh, you know, Nergal is actually on Art's side. Um, Coyote says, how we've just killed a bunch of people. Nergal, uh, but that was different. How so? Nergal hesitated, unsure. And Art said quickly, those were a bunch of police torturers who had your buddy and were microwaving his brain. They got what they were what was coming to them. But these guys down this canyon are just digging up rocks, right? You can't kill the working man. Right, uh, right. If you want the working man on your side. Right. right? Well, and Coyote's still suspicious. I mean, he says, is this a Praxis mine? And mm-hmm. Art says, I don't know. I don't care either. Right. Hmm. Well, all right. We'll try it your way. But right. this is an interesting moment of, I think the... Um, suddenly we're seeing Art is really directly intervening. Yeah. And also he's suggesting tactics, yeah. right? I mean, this is like... It's a good suggestion. It, well, it, it does seem like a good suggestion. You know, he's making an ethical point, but right. it's also a point about like, don't you think it's time to be thinking toward something else? And yeah. the, thinking toward means we've got to think about like, you want to make sure that your actions are not alienating the very people you right. ultimately will probably want uh, to have on your side. Right. Um, I think that that's like a, yeah. I mean, so we've seen in the last chapter, okay, art, is smart Mm -hmm. at least you know he is insightful and he has a way of getting people to talk to him and he sure is good at asking a whole lot of questions Mm -hmm. um and getting a whole lot of answers even when people remain suspicious Mm -hmm. of him but here we see him like he's intervening more actively right this is like he's in some kind of process of becoming not what we expected and and actually not really the ambassador yeah maybe a spy yeah but like it's this is not an it's not the ambassador's job to suggest the tactics the resistance might take right i feel like you're always expecting art to like change on them and i can't remember if he does in the i don't think he ever like turns on them i mean i don't expect him to but i feel like you're very suspicious of art of art yeah well i mean you know the question is like what does it mean to like work for a corporation right right I well, mean, I don't know, Hillary. What does it mean to work for a corporation? You work for one. I know, I do. And I think that, like, they're constantly trying to make you into their creature, you know? And, like, even when you think, like, oh, and I'm, resistance do- is futile. I'm doing something else. Like, you know, I'm doing the best that I can for the people that I care about. Yeah. Like, in the end, you are reproducing the interests of the institution. Damn. I know. They get you every time. They get you every time. So they raid the uranium mine called the Pitch Blend Mine. Pitch, pitch Blend Alley. Which Man. is just a great name. Um, and th- this is one of these moments, too, where it's such a great moment because they're running and they all have yeah. different ways of running. And Nergal has this loping stride. And the, the animal in- imagery comes back really, really forcefully here where he's compared to like a cheetah um, and, or a springbok. A springbok. And, and um, oh, no, no. And Art is a cheetah bear. <laughs> right. Uh, somehow he's able to run really fast, even though bear. he's just like 
gangly and out of control, but he's still able to run really fast. Right. And Coyote sort of has to catch up because he has this, he, he doesn't have a great gait for, uh, for Mars. Right, um, right. Uh, yeah, the run the running I, stuff is really great. This kind of like invocation of like just physical pleasure, but also like they're running as fast as they can to like get out of situations before right. they get caught right. too. And he also Nergal has this Tibetan uh, breathing strategy of lungam uh, that allows him to kind of you know get into a a, a rhythm of, right a, right. A, 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 running that he describes as a kind of state. yeah rapture so here's another like version of what meditation is or mm-hmm. the reality of reality mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the reality of reality um uh, we get introduced to kava java i think we kava have a party i think we have heard about kava java and red mars also yeah but we haven't had the full description of it though did we ever get uh, maybe i think we, we did. i think john boone drinks kava he java definitely you know does, his fondness for, get a f- his fondness for any kind of mind-altering yeah. substance that would come his way. Yeah. Um, this uh, this opening, the part that, the kind of first half of the chapter, I would say, although this is a Nergal chapter, um, I wanted to bring up something about the perspective of this chapter as we get to this. I just found a paragraph that kind of exemplifies what I what I want to say about it, which is that although this is a Nergal chapter, the subjectivity, the perspective of this chapter seems split in a lot of ways. It's much more general than, again, than going back to the Anne chapter, where we're really trapped in her mind. Um, this There's a lot of physical description and a lot of more general description of sort of what's going on in a, in a space, uh, in a physical space, than we might expect and so it's kind of initially it's it goes back and forth it's hard to kind of pinpoint that this is a Nergal chapter up yeah, until the yeah. sort of second half so on page 290 there's this the second paragraph there um it goes between Coyote introduced them all although Nergal knew Vajika um and then Coyote was looking around Sax is looking around Spencer is there Coyote went to the samovars um, it's a lot of more general description mm-hmm. and it's not locked into Coyote's I mean Nergal's perspective and I feel also that this reflects on the influence that art has over this chapter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where um, and and it, and the chapter's function for us as the reader because we're being introduced to a lot of new people a lot of new places and a lot of new ideas um, so being thrust into that kind of childlike vision or just vision of newness of Mars that art is in and that Nergal knows, but he's still in a sense of wonder and like uh, freshness. To yeah. Him. Yeah. Um, where, you know, coyote is sort of helps us as a kind of tour guide through this so that we, in that sense, we are kind of with Nergal and art um, uh, because they are with Coyote, and Coyote, Coyote is always their guide. Yeah, but I think yeah. that like also the, just the the relationship between Art and Nergal as it expands and like um, deepens in this chapter um, reflects really, really well on or, or structures the experience of the reader here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, abs- absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and there is a kind of. Um, the first part of the chapter, not the not the Sachs story, right. um, and then Sachs becomes this kind of presence. He's there in the rover with them, but he's incapacitated and he can't speak. Um, you know, so we have this kind of move in the first half of the chapter between 
these more kind of adventurous moments, um, you know, exploratory, adventurous, Nergal and Art talking, this kind of like, you know, meditative, self-reflective, um, and then called back to Sachs there in right. his, you know, not totally locked in state, but he's pretty close to being locked in, you know, he, he can't communicate anymore. Um, he's being driven around. He needs to be tended to. Um, and that's an, there's, that's an interesting kind of set of movements that are happening in the chapter. And I do think you're right. This is not super closely focused through Nergal, or we, we get these kind of shifts. Yeah, not until the end. I mean, the end of the chapter, we're, we're obviously with him. But, but um, I think it also, it also help, um, helps to keep in mind that Spencer's the other one that's with right. Right. Um, and he's also being introduced to all of this because he's been a secret agent on the outside right, right. for so long that he's never been, he doesn't, he's never seen any of these towns or met any of these people uh, either. So um, it's a lot of, n- it's a lot of new stuff that's being introduced both to the characters and to us, the reader. Right. And then at the same time, we have this interesting way in which uh, not only does the chapter as a whole flash us, the readers back to Red Mars, because in the latter half of the chapter, there is a repetition of John Boone's traveling around. Um, but a lot of what Nergal and uh, Art are talking about is about Nergal's past. Right. Um, and so we have, as in the last chapter, when we worried about, um, you know, the first 100 and where their memories are going, here we also have a kind of interest in child, in childhood, um, in how one is made or formed. Not, I mean, we saw, just talked about that moment when, uh, you know, Nergal is like, oh yeah, it's like he's in the ectogene tank. Um, on 300, we have, I think, a really interesting exchange um, you know, he's been talking, he's been talking, Nergal has been talking with Art about being at university, about being among strangers, about how much he felt that he learned just from being among strangers, from having to, like, have exchanges with people who he didn't know. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, but then once in a while, he would be, utter- he, Nergal, would be utterly surprised by some action totally foreign to his understanding and be reminded yet again what a cloistered, even claustrophobic upbringing he had had in Zygote, leaving him as innocent in some ways as a fairy brought up under an abalone shell, mm-hmm. um, which is just like a like lovely, crazy image. It calls back to, you know... The Little Red Men. The Little Red Men, back to the way in which we talked about Zygote as like a kind of a fairy tale space. Mm-hmm. Although also, you know, it's a fairy tale where children are born in tanks, which is a weird fairy tale. Cabbage Patch. Uh, (laughs) uh, No, it's not Zygote that made me, he said to Art, looking behind them to make sure that Coyote, dad, was really (laughs) sleeping. You can't choose your childhood. It's just what happens to you. But after that, you choose. I chose Sabaishi. And that's what made me. Maybe, Art said, rubbing his jaw. But childhood isn't just those years. It's also the opinions you form about them afterward. That's why our childhoods are so long. And that is like this, you know, like, first of all, uh, here we can no longer think that art is not a smart person. Yeah. Or that art is not actually like an extremely insightful person. Savvy. He has a way of like saying to this very young man who wants to say, oh, you know, I'm not made by my childhood. Right, I, you right. know, I made myself when I made a right. choice. Right. And, you know, he has a way of sort of saying like, okay, okay, that's that's not really 
the case. But then he also tells us something, the idea that our childhoods are long, which is just an, it's a very interesting image, right? You know, that we live with them for a long time, that they make us. We could think back to the sort of problem of like, can Mars have a new history, mm -hmm. right? Can human beings have a new history that begins on Mars? The image of like the umbilical cord, yeah. the attachment to right. Earth, right? Can that be broken? Or do we keep living in that long history? And I was thinking in this, one of the things that we see in this chapter um, is we start, we start getting these glimpses of um, like culture in like the most specific sense, like, you know, uh, like arts and stuff yes, like that. We right. start seeing that yeah. stuff, right? A production of Shakespeare. Yeah, that's what I, yeah. Uh, this like crazy, they come across this completely crazy place where like somebody has made this sculpture, this like oh, utopian yeah. sculpture out of alabaster yeah. of all things. Um, you know, and we've, se town. we've seen bits and pieces of this before, right? And we've definitely seen the presence of music, um, you know, Sufi practices, other other practices that have come from Earth. Um, but this chapter seems very deliberately to want to draw our attention to um, all of these um, like different aspects of Earth culture brought onto Mars, played out on Mars, um, people's engagement with culture, culture as a medium of exchange, of self-definition, of bringing people together, although also, I suppose, potentially separating people mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I wanted to, that was what I wanted to return to the Sabayishi uh, section about of, uh, yeah, the, the production of Shakespeare, because I'm always, uh, and, you know, um, at night he might crash on the floor of a friend's after, tr after talking to a 140-year-old Bedouin about the Transcaucasus War, and the next night be playing bass steel drum or marimbas till dawn with 20 other Kavajavad Latin Americans and Polynesians. The next after that, be in bed with one of the dusky beauties from the band, women as cheerful as Jackie at her best and much less complicated. <laughs> The following night, he might go with friends to a performance of Shakespeare's King John and observe the great X that the play's structure made, blah, blah, blah. So I'm always looking in the in like any like novel uh, or movie or whatever for like, yeah, the place of art within the work mm, of art mm -hmm. and like how, like, especially these novels, which are so much invested in describing people doing science and exploring and all this kind of stuff like what do people do for fun right yeah <laughs> um what you know is is everything just like work or aka not work for them because it's not labor that they get paid for or whatever um but where is the place of art and culture here and yeah with the production of uh king john with um the this weird sculpture garden the music the dancing right um these are all things, avenues that people's creative juices find to flow into on Mars. Right. No one seems to go to the movies. Uh, we've seen people watch basically like YouTube clips. Yep. Yep. Um, but um, yeah, what do people do for fun? How do they do? They just sit around cafes drinking kava java or or what? Mm. And and finally, we get some kind of yes, yeah, some. Um, vision of this nascent uh burgeoning martian culture right right that's drawn from earth but that's also you know unique to mars right right and it, se it seems like culture is not i mean uh culture is beco is becoming something or right. are, are, Mar are mars something that can be properly described as culture is emerging right, right. in some ways here like 
it seems like we should use culture to mean like the whole way that people are living, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the entire way of yeah. life. Um, well, but yeah, also, what is all this for? Yeah. Right. But also like specific practices are starting to happen, right? People are making and conveying meaning, right? Registering like the historical moment and the complexities of the historical moment by making sculpture or putting mm -hmm. on productions of King John of mm -hmm. all things, at, right? Um, yeah, I think that's an interest. That's an interesting piece of this, partly because it's another way of registering like the growing complexity of Mars. Yeah, um, the growing, you know, the obviously like the demimond is like an extremely complicated yeah. society. Not yeah. not huge, right? You can still like know lots of people and move around, um, but you know, complicated people bringing stuff from all over the place. Well, the the Medusa buildings um, in this strange. Where is it? Uh, anyway, the, it's on those, 309. 309, yeah. Um, this whole town of statues, uh, in a weird way, you know, mirrors to a certain degree uh, the prison in Casa Vallis. Oh, because it's yeah. a place that no one knew existed. Right. That just kind of you stumble upon, right? Um, that, uh, that somebody... But but this is you know it's not a it, it's it's its opposite right because some intentional person or people decided let's create a town but create it only of statues right right and we um, and really it's something that like uh, who knows what it's for um, you yeah. know it seems to be a kind of utopian image there's yeah right uh nergal thinks um it was as if the sculptor had made the place in order to speak to him mm -hmm. to strike him with his own vision the white world of his childhood thrusting right out into the green or out here into the red and there was something in the peace of the place not just the stillness but the marvelous relaxation and all the figures the flowing calm of their stances mars could be this way no more hiding no more strife the children racing around the market the lions walking right. among them like cats um, and they spend time in this alabaster town and then see a, a white bas-relief face, a Medusa face uh, on a cliffside opposite the town, um, which Coyote suggests is a self-portrait of the sculptor. Uh, yes. So, yeah, it's just, um, and it appears to us, and to, it, it, it appears out of sort of nowhere to us and to them. Yeah, right, right. right. Just this kind of almost primitive... Um, you know, although it's clearly built by one of their contemporaries, because there are no tour guides there or brochures or or tourist maps, um, it almost has a feeling of prehistory or of like a natural phenomenon. Yeah. Of the fact of the possibility that the little the little red man or big man himself uh -huh. had a hand <laughs> in making this. Right. 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 And um, this interesting idea that it like um, in some ways because it's like whatever representational sculpture and it's all white you know, mm -hmm. it's alabaster in some ways it feels like oh it, it's calling on and the medusa like oh like it's classical references um but nergal reads it as an image of a possible future right, right? not uh you know not something pointing to like some earth past but this sort of like you know utopian picture of like what mars could be waiting to be yeah it's like waiting to be activated waiting to be um, you know, well, the noosphere preceding the biosphere, yeah, basically. Right, right. That the it, this is an image that you could aspire to. And also, if I just I just had that thought. Like, 
Oh my God. I mean, obviously it's a project that must have taken a really long yeah. time. I mean, it's extensive. It yeah, feels yeah. like a whole town. Yeah. You can walk around in it. It's the most crazy art installation you you ever see. And if we think, if we can imagine a single sculptor right. having made it, like years, yeah, years yeah. and years and years yeah. of work. Well, like, you know, yeah, same with Coyote climbing down those cliffs, installing those fans and lasers to break, sure, to destroy right. the prison. Or... Well, yeah. Or or in Red Mars when we have the image of the like the um gate made out of the stones with the stone lying oh, yeah. across the top that right. they see and that you know like both seems to be made but we're not you know it seems yeah. to be a marker but we don't exactly know how you could have done such a thing the stone seems to be suspended as if by magic yeah. up there. The other thing that we get in this chapter that we didn't even talk about uh, at all before we get into the Nadia section is we get uh, Coyote's story in yeah. in more detail, once again, due to the magic of art, art. getting people to uh, open up and mm-hmm. tell their tell their stories. Um, and we learned that Hiroko had him, he was in prison in uh, Trinidad for uh, objecting to flag of convenience laws. Uh, and Hiroko had, quote, friends mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> in Japan. Uh, he says, unusual friends in Japan who busted him out of right. his cell and took him out in a helicopter onto a tanker. Amazing. Um, and from there, you know, I mean, we already know that she arranged for him to get on the Aries. I mean, we know that that um, she had done that somehow. But here we actually get the specifics of him having to be inside the container in yeah. this kind of essentially like in a closet in a, the storage compartment behind the pigs. Right. And, wait, and what happened to the pigs? Uh, were they irradiated? Like, did he, did something happen to the pigs? Well, I don't know, but do they have, they don't have pigs in a, they didn't have pigs in Zygote. Well, did they, they, I don't know. Did Maybe they, have they pigs did, in but, Underhill? They, but they had, I mean, the I, I feel like when they went through that radiation storm or whatever, the animals didn't they lock the animals up somewhere or something i can't i or did they I, just leave them i actually can't remember but i don't think that when they get to mars they still have their livestock i mean maybe they were just going to eat them on the trip i think they must have still had their li- maybe they i don't know i don't know what about the pigs you have to re- what about the pigs <laughs> i found the core question that i want us to continue um, discussing we'd have to find it we'd have to like you I don't have, have to backtrack all the way to Red Mars. I don't have my Red Mars. Neither here. do I, and I would never be able to find it um, uh, or that spot. But maybe our listeners know. What happened to the pigs? Hey, listeners, what happened to the pigs? <laughs> um, um, but in any case, I think I I love it's so uh, um, it's so great to get Coyote's story just here in the middle of this yeah. chapter, yeah. right? And, and to have him just kind of telling it yeah. in his like expansive way and he says uh um i was out on the surface more than anyone even Anne. Right. by the time the farm team moved out there to it i was used to spending a lot of time on my own just me and big man out wandering the planet i tell you it was like heaven no not heaven it was mars pure mars i guess i lost my mind in a way but i loved it so i can't really talk about it right uh, it's just such a great that, you know, again, we have somebody saying like Anne, like Saks, mm-hmm. uh, like the like the little red people in the prologue, mm-hmm. you know, are you the one who's with Mars? Are you Mars? Right. And here's Coyote saying, you know, oh, no, it wasn't heaven. It was Mars. Yeah. I loved it so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we also learned that he's taken more radiation probably than anybody because he was just uh in the in the radiation on the ship and then well he spent so much time out on the surface yeah this that section ends up with uh this 
pearls of wisdom from Coyote. Um, uh, being secretive, uh, even secretive weird old hermits like Coyote. Well, it was not that hard, Coyote was saying now. Concealment is never as hard as people think. You must understand that. It's action while hiding that is the hard part. <laughs> at that thought, he frowned, then pointed a finger at Nergal. This is why we will have to come out eventually and fight in the open. This is why I got you to go to Sabiishi. What? You didn't tell me. You told me I shouldn't go. You said it would ruin me. That was how I got you to go. Um, it's like his most dad moment. Yeah, totally his most dad moment. And also like speaks back to like um, Nergal's sense of self-confidence and like, oh, Zygote didn't make me. That was my childhood, mm-hmm. blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And then like an older person saying like, yeah, you're that's cute kid that you think you know all the forces that shaped you, but wait until you get to be my age. And yet, by the way, I know tricks that you don't know about how to manipulate people because I've been around here longer. You know, that kind of... Um, that kind of thing. But the but the idea of action while hiding being the hard part. Yeah. And we yeah. have to come out eventually and fight in the open. Yeah. Um, and that there is definitely going to be a fight. Like that that the ruling class will not just simply give over their uh their their ruling uh class without um without a fight, without it being taken from them forcibly. And then and then we have kind of following on that, we get the uh we get another moment from art where he begins to, you know, make things happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, oh yeah. This is like, this is the moment when he first really dis- says you should really have a meeting with right. all of these right. exactly. groups because what's happened is they've, they've come to one of the caches that they were relying on for more fuel and it's been raided by a rival gang that is pissed off at coyote for whatever, something coyote did and art is like you know are there so how many other underground groups are there like do you have basically he wants a a he's looking for a way of mediating this conflict of avoiding these kinds of like um these kinds of conflicts uh and says you know you should really have a meeting we get the schnelling splinter groups <laughs> um, uh but and and art says but aren't you all working for the same thing right um i don't know and nergal is remembering arguments and how fierce the arguments were about what they were working for and then art says but haven't you talked it over not in any formal way no art looks surprised you should do that he said do what nergal said you should convene some kind of meeting of all the underground groups and see if you can't agree about what you're all trying to do how to settle disputes and like that Aside from a skeptical snort from Coyote, there was no response to this. After a long time, Nergal said, my impression is that some of those groups are wary of Gamete because of the first hundred in it. No one wants to give up any autonomy to what's already perceived as the most powerful sanctuary. But they could work on that at a meeting, Art said. (laughs) That's part of what it would be for. Among other things, you need to work together, especially if the Transnet police get more active about what they after what they found out from Sachs. Sachs nodded at this. The rest of them considered it in silence. Somewhere in the consideration, Art started to snore, but Nergal was awake for hours thinking about it. He's a guy who loves meetings. Meetings, but he also imagined, you know, he has a little bit of a, he has some faith that if they get together, they'll be able to talk their way to at least some kind of agreement. Right. Whereas it seems like Nergal's experience has suggested, uh, but if we get together, we'll just argue our way into more disagreement. But also that there's no, you know, well, what's the alternative? 
you know, for, for, for art, it's like, well, this is no way to live for you to hide stuff all over Mars and then people to like ransack it and steal it from you and put your lives at risk. You know what I mean? Like, like our art is like, you need to sort this out systematically. You can't just live chaotically like this. Right. Um, right. Especially and- if you're going to have any hope against like the transitional authority or the transnats. Uh, totally, you know, wiping you out eventually. And as if to bear that out, their the their journey becomes distinctly imperiled by having run out of supplies, right. particularly out of fuel. Right. They're only able to steal enough fuel to get them almost all the way, uh, almost all the way home to gamete. Yeah. Um, they have to run on battery power. Um, you know, and this this whole time they have sacks in the back of the car and he still needs treatment. Mm-hmm. He's still, um, you know, unable to communicate and presumably also just like in terrible physical shape generally. Uh, but finally they make it uh, they make it home, I guess, or they make it to gamete. Mm-hmm. Um, should we stop there? I think we should stop there. Um, we have a lot more to talk about, about this chapter, because we haven't talked about the nitrogen economy right. at all. Uh, and of course we've got, and it's, uh, and we, we've, we're about to get, um, Art and Nadia are about to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, we have a lot more to talk about. So yeah, we should cut it there. It's been an over an hour anyway. So oh. that's our traditional length of a episode. Yes. And, um, yeah, so next time is going to be part two of Tarikat. Part two of Tarikat. And we'll have a lot more to talk about. Yeah, we'll talk about uh, the underground and driving around and trying to get people to talk to each other. Yeah. And uh, Sufis and syncretic religion and... Uh, is art the new John Boone? The eco-economy and Jackie and um, the part where uh, Jackie and Nergal bonk faceplates. <laughs> Which is my new favorite euphemism for uh, having sex. We won't talk about that for very long. They're bonking faceplates. Oh, my God. All right. All right. All right. All right. That's enough. All right. Goodbye. Bye.